This is what happens when you enlist software engineers to go to the front lines because they see the opportunity and they have that background to say, you know, I can fix that. This is the new style of war. It's terribly important for all of the Western leaders to note and see what Ukraine is doing. It's really amazing. Brexit really is the impetus behind all of this. And you're right, if they had stayed in, they would just be contributing to and actually leading what is going on in Europe. And what is going on in Europe is really quite impressive. From Orion X, in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, Shaheen. Great to be with you again. Great to be here once again. How are you, Doug? Good. Some very interesting things have come up of late that we're looking forward to talking about with you. Increasingly, we want to talk about how we'd fit these topics into the bigger categories that we're looking at. Yeah, it's clear that HPC as our core touches a whole lot of things, and it's having more implications socially and politically than it ever did. And like we alluded to in our last episode, and we've been talking about it over the past couple of few weeks, it'd be good to categorize it somehow. So If you look at IoT and Edge as one, the whole communication fabric networking exemplified by 5G at one end, and maybe the supercomputing fabric at the other end would be the second. HPC and AI coming together, including accelerators, GPUs, even quantum computing accelerators would be the third. There's a whole set of activities in cybersecurity, cryptography, cryptocurrencies, attack surfaces, all of that, that could be number four. And then all of that is really having an impact on geopolitics. And we've used the word technopolitics in the past as a way of pointing to that. So those would be five shifts, five big shifts in the market that we could touch on on an ongoing basis. Yeah, I like this because it gives us a framework to understand this incredibly rapidly changing world and what it all means and what buckets to put these developments in. Now, on that geopolitical, technopolitical front, obviously the most important thing going on in the world these days, and it's something we haven't talked about in a <laughs> <much> while, <laughs> is uh, the war in Ukraine. And there was a really interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal, March 8th, by, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, Shyam or Shyam, S-H-Y-A-M, Sankar. He's the chief technology officer at Palantir, which makes the very successful AI machine learning software platform. He's a software guy. And he's talking about Ukraine's software warrior brigade, really portrays them as not only heroic, not only really at the core of Ukraine's tremendous, very impressive showing in this terrible war against Russia and their success in reclaiming land territories, cities that were taken by Russia at the beginning of the war, but very innovative, very iterative and entrepreneurial use of software by these software engineers who are in the tech industry in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of how long it's been since we touched on this topic, we were pretty early on back in February 27th of 2022, because I've looked it up. <laughs> in our episode 14, we had Richard Steinen as our special guest to look at cyber warfare and its impact or whether there was any visible signs of it in those early days of the war. Mm-hmm. And of course, unfortunately, it's a year later and the war is still on. And the story in Wall Street Journal that you pointed to is very interesting because it just 
conjures up a few big notions in my head. One is really just military technology Mm -hmm. and how military technology is rapidly shifting, informed by these advanced technologies of which HPC and AI are a big component. Mm -hmm. The second one is really, this is what happens when you enlist software engineers to go to the front lines because they see the opportunity and they have that background to say, you know, I can fix that. We could use this. And presumably they're bringing it back to their software companies and hardware companies that they came from. And those guys go build prototypes and thus advance. And that leads to really the other part of this. As technology gets more and more infused in military, the cycles need to be faster. Well, yeah. And it does run contrary to what we typically see from the military, which can be kind of hidebound, can have the, you know, fighting the last war kind of orientation, not readily adopting the latest and greatest. But in Ukraine's case, you know, necessity is the mother of, of all of this, of what's going on. And this is the new style of war. It's terribly important for all of the Western leaders to note and see what Ukraine is doing. It's really amazing. It is extremely This really points to the future of warfare as much as we all work on avoiding it, but now it's being observed and how it is essentially like a technology product life cycle. It's kind of Mm. active R&D and way faster cycles that you see the need and literally three months later, you're deploying it, right? That's the kind of- It might be even faster than that. Maybe even faster. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. According to the story anyway, which and it rings true. I think one of the reasons why it's interesting is because it rings true. And I don't think it's confirmation bias. I think it's just data that we're observing mm-hmm. that the future of military and the future of warfare has to rely on significantly faster product life cycles. And that really changes how you fund it, how you project R&D, how do you take it through the procurement process and the streamlining that must happen in the back end of this to make it happen it must be very impressive because that stuff is hard to do. Yeah, I think a big part of this is not only the software, the tech community in Ukraine on the front lines, these soldiers doing this stuff, but the Ukrainian government and the military, starting with the ministers on down through the military hierarchy, are readily accepting this stuff too. So it's it sounds like a very cooperative endeavor that the Ukraine government has responded very well to. And by contrast, we hear Russia is not responding at all to the new tech world. They're not bringing it to the battlefield. They don't know how to. We hear they're using, for example, civilian cell phones to communicate, which gives away their locations and entire units are taken out by the Ukrainians. And also a very top-down, rigid hierarchy on the battlefield so that the senior commanders issue orders and the, the junior officers on the front lines aren't able or allowed to respond. I think the last point in all this is Putin himself and what he's done, this invasion. It's something out of the pre-World War II era. It's so retrograde. It it filters down all the way through the Russian military approach and strategy. Watching from outside from our vantage point, it is clear to us that that entire endeavor is a mistake, that maybe there would have been other ways of pursuing whatever goals that they're trying to pursue, or maybe those goals are not even practical to pursue. But what also comes out is that there's a new way to wage war, hot war, not just cold war or soft war, that is going to have to benefit from technological rapid cycle improvement that really exercises your processes and checks and balances and how you streamline things. And that is a challenge for Western societies who 
kind of rely on checks and balances and go slow to make sure we get it right kind of a process and kind of a process. Yeah. 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 As I was reading this, and again, Mr. Sankar's software orientation, the phrase software is eating the world, you know, it's eating this war, it's eating the Russians in this case, is a very nice turn of phrase. Not to make light of all this, it's deadly serious. Right, right, right. Toward the end of the article, he said, these Ukrainian software engineers are as comfortable wielding javelins as Jupyter notebooks. There you go. There you go. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I personally have always taken a bit of an exception to the notion of software is doing this or that Mm. because software relies on data. And what is really doing all of that is digitization. And digitization increasingly is a blend of hardware and software. I think Steve Jobs at Apple and going back to the Alan Kay quote of many years ago that if you're serious about software, you build your own hardware kind of a thing. I don't exactly remember the phraseology, but it was something like that. So I think it's digitization that is eating the world. It is information revolution that is the next age of everything. And software is a very critical piece of it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a mistake to think it's just software. It's sensors, it's hardware, it's customization of all of that, it's processes, it's the deployment, it's the fabric. It's it's really the five shifts that we talked about. It's all of those. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Related to this is a full House committee hearing that took place a few days ago. And this is the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. U.S. Congress committee has 37 members. And the specific hearing was about the U.S., China, and the fight for global leadership. And the idea is to really come up with a science and technology strategy for the nation. A very worthy topic, a very good hearing to, it's like close to three hours, you know, just over two and a half hours. And I'm Mm -hmm. like an hour and a half into it. And I'm really Mm -hmm. enjoying what they've been saying. What has come to me is incredible alignment between all the members of the committee on focusing on this. And it is really refreshing to see that kind of an alignment and see what can happen when you have that. And it's not just a partisan fight. Well, nothing unites domestic political opponents like an external adversary, in this case, China. But it, it is amazing the level of bipartisanship is so <laughs> rare these days. Well, there are days when I'm not even sure that's going to do it. So it's, really, <laughs> so it's really reassuring to see that in this particular committee, I am seeing cooperative and productive alignment, but also a diversity of issues that every member who asks a question brings in yet another angle to this whole endeavor. That also shows just how difficult it is to do these things as a national policy because you have to meet so many different demands. And that also, in some ways, can enrich it if you get it right, but it can slow it down if it kind of pushes you back to go and figure out how to meet that other requirements as well. But very impressive panel. The director of Los Alamos National Labs is there. The Council on Competitiveness is there, and a couple of other folks who are extremely bright and obviously well-versed into this. So good vote of confidence on that committee. Yeah, absolutely. And sticking with technopolitics, there was news out of the UK in the middle of this past week. The headline I wrote was, the UK is now looking to join the Exascale Club of Nations. They're putting together a strategy to become a science and technology powerhouse, so they state by 2030. And they're looking at the possibility of budgeting 800 million pounds for a leadership class system, presumably an exascale class system. Yeah, I saw that last week and I was reading the actual report. 
Really well done. I think as these committees go, it was a nicely done report. The person who's leading it is a VP of research at Google that has a dual appointment at University of Cambridge in the UK and has assembled a team that is quite capable. The report looks good. It seems like a good framework to go get funding. There was a bit of a reaction in social media about his dual appointment. And I think in this case, I believe it is, a, again, a reassuring aspect that the proposal has the benefit of an industrial perspective and not the fully academic perspective on things. So that's good. They are talking about spring of 2024 to publish a roadmap and by 2026 to deliver a full exascale. Well, yeah, and they own up to, they really portray the UK as lagging in HPC and AI relative to the world stage. Now, the UK famously withdrew from the European Union. And it's interesting to think, I mean, if they had remained in, they would be benefiting by the enormous effort and investment going on on the continent in advanced computing. In the UK, the report noted that the country does not have a top 25 system on, on the top 500 list of the world's most powerful supercomputers. But it Clearly, there's a lot of HPC and AI and quantum activity going on in the UK. It's rather impressive. But I think a big part of their thinking is to unify this work and not have kind of a scattershot approach. Yeah, I think that Brexit really is the impetus behind all of this. And you're right, if they had stayed in, they would just be contributing to and actually leading what is going on in Europe. And what is going on in Europe is really quite impressive with what they're doing in Barcelona Supercomputer with Nostra Mare 5 system that was announced and discussed last week or two weeks ago, including some quantum computing aspects to it and a roadmap that is going to get you to higher and higher performance. Lumi, we've talked about, the University of ULIC. And Brexit was a monkey wrench in there, I have no doubt. And to yeah. reinsert back in the EU is probably not going to happen in that same way, but to get better aligned is really good. The UK is quite a powerhouse without a doubt globally, lots and lots of expertise and research and advanced technology. So it is good to see that. It's good to see that they're allocating, I think your report mentioned 800 million pounds. Yeah. That's a nice chunk of change to allocate to this. And yeah. they could do a really nice system by 2026. The other part of it that was interesting was the intersection of AI and HPC again, mm -hmm. that increasingly people want to do these AI supercomputers. And as we all know by now, I believe AI in this context of deep learning really is a subset of HPC, but it's a more visible component. So sure, let it be called a... But the AI workflow, it's all fundamentally moving us towards autonomy. You're talking about unattended AI. You have continuous data flow, so you need federated continuous learning at the edge because it's decentralized. And that requires the fabric that gets you from edge to core to cloud and back. And in a way, it becomes a microcosm of all the trends that we're talking about. And that's also very interesting. Yeah. And by the way, I think it should be noted, the UK is installing a mammoth supercomputer in the UK Met Office, their meteorological right. office. And this is being built by HPE. It'll reside on the Azure cloud. And it'll be a 60 petaflop system, which would come in at about 11 or 12 on that top 500 list. So there is that. But all of this really does reflect, once again, that countries, major geopolitical players, and I think the UK has, what, the fifth or sixth biggest economy in the world, the sense of falling behind on HPC AI is 
really a problem. <laughs> it's it's uh, in fact they note that we need to keep up with our peers. Yeah. It's crucial to national competitiveness and of course national security. I think by now it should be crystal clear that the yeah. future is chips and AI and advanced technologies like HPC and those are future wars. If you're still stuck with yesterday's war, well, you might win them, but you're not going to be out in the future. And as it relates to the cloud, the other question for all these government agencies is, is the objective to learn how to do that yourself? Or is the objective to rely on the private sector to provide that for you? And I believe that balance is also very important because I think a whole bunch of this know-how needs to exist within these agencies. And that kind of a dependence on external factors has to be carefully measured. Maybe at some point we'll get there. I feel like you want that sort of expertise in-house for a good while yet. And that means you have to really have a multi-cloud strategy where you do use external cloud, but you also build the expertise in-house as you need to. Yeah. What you're saying really makes me think of the national labs like Oak Ridge and Argonne, Livermore, et cetera, Sandia, that where they're not just users, but they're so actively involved in the building of these systems. So as you say, you're not just relying on the commercial vendors. It's in-house as well. That's right. That's right. So I think that's another piece of this whole kind of future, customized edge to cloud. Everything is smart. Everything is a computer sort of a view. Now, the roadmap for the Barcelona Supercomputer Center, and this is a segue into another topic, perhaps, <laughs> included chips from various entities, including Intel. And there was a roadmap change that maybe goes under our HPC AI category that at least I wanted to rant about. Yeah, this was very big news toward the beginning of last week. And it was on after business hours on Friday, March 3rd, Intel announced changes to its HPC AI roadmap. It does fit into a Pretty long-standing pattern of this kind of thing from Intel, including product delays. Now, what they announced was the discontinuation of the Rialto Bridge GPU. This was the successor to the Ponte Vecchio chip, which is now being installed in the Aurora supercomputer. So, you know, it as I say, this is uh, the kind of thing we've been seeing from Intel. What they did say is that they're going to move to the Falcon Shores GPU, which is part of the Mac series of products that they talked about a lot at SC in November and officially announced in January. Yeah, no, it totally came across as an attempt to bury the news. It was in a blog post, but the reaction, at least on social media, was that Rialto Bridge is canceled and that the next Intel GPU will be Falcon Shores in 2025, which is like two years away. And the history of execution with Intel and this kind of a technology is a little spotty. So it's very easy to conclude that maybe 2025 will not be met either. And now you wonder whether this announcement could have been handled better. So I don't know what word I was going to use to be fair to Intel as well as fair to the market. So maybe it was like a market-challenged announcement. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but as you yeah. mentioned, the letter of the blog says, and I'm quoting here, Rialto Bridge, which was intended to provide incremental improvements over our current architecture, will be discontinued. So they did not use the word cancel. Mm. Is that meaningful? I don't know. But if it is meaningful, it would imply that maybe existing commitments are met, but then it will be discontinued. Is that the case? It would have been good for somebody to ascertain that. It would provide incremental improvements. Was it the case that 
hey, it was going to be incremental, and I'm going to give you incremental performance in other ways, so don't worry about it. That could have been clarified and made more explicit, and it Mm -hmm. wasn't. And then literally three days earlier, Barcelona Supercomputer Center was showing Realtorage on their roadmap. Are they going to get it? Are they not going to get it? Was it coordinated with them? Did they have a heads up? So none of that was made clear, which makes it very possible for everybody to go make the worst assumptions. So really, there are better ways of doing this, and I hope that they will take steps to do that. Yeah, I do too. You know, the thing with the Max series announcements, you know, they talked a lot about this technology at SC in November, and the official announcement was in January. And I think all things considered, they got a good response to that, a positive response. So how this all plays out, we'll have to see. But Yeah, yeah. Now, what I wish they would have done, which I believe is the case, is to say that, look, the chiplet architecture, the tiles that we're working on, and you've seen it on Ponte Vecchio, that is a major architectural opportunity for us. And instead of going and doing an incremental on this, maybe it's better to step back and try to catch that next wave that we otherwise are going to miss by like, you know, six months. And so in other words, you're getting something that is better, faster, cheaper earlier with the path that we're on. And therefore, it's really not about discontinuing or canceling something, but about giving you something better earlier than otherwise would be the case. I think that would make sense. And it may even be actually true. <laughs> so why not <laughs> tell that why story? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we'll have to see, you know, further clarification from Intel. So there we have it. There we have it. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shaheen. Great to be with you again. And we'll talk again soon. Look forward to it. Thank you, Doug. Thank you all for listening. Take care. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening.